continuing uh, in our series, Stories of the Bible, Stories of the Bible, and we're not sticking to any specific chronological order, but we're really looking at different stories that maybe have gotten a lot of airtime and might be kind of famous, or uh, maybe you just you have basic Sunday school level knowledge is the way I would categorize it around that story or that narrative, and and maybe at times we've we've sort of flown by it and sort of grasped it and maybe seen a couple cool ideas or concepts that come from it, but we haven't taken the time to really dive in and understand. Uh, why this story was written, why it was added into the canon of Scripture, what is the greater purpose, how does it connect throughout the entire Bible, and see the bigger picture at play. You see, uh, one of the beautiful things about Scripture, and, and I feel like the more time I spend reading the Bible, studying the Word, the more in love with it I get, and honestly, the more divine it feels, because I realize that just, you start to see all of the connections, that how amazing it is that over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years that this book was written by multiple authors, and yet how cohesive it is, and how seamless it is, and how it's all one massive story leading back to the person of Jesus, and it's interconnected, it's interwoven, and the beauty of it is so incredible, and then the way that it can apply to our lives. So when we read, for example, today we'll be reading out of the book of Genesis again. We read out of a book from early, early on and when humans started to build civilizations and, man, how does this apply to today? We're actually going to begin to track it and lace it through and understand how impactful this story is right here today on June 5th of 2022. And we're going to read out of Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1 if you want to turn there. Um, and just to help you understand where we're at in Genesis chapter 11. This is pretty recent after Noah's Ark and the flood of the entire world. And many early scholars uh, that would have studied um, these books of Moses, they would have actually seen even within Genesis, not just a single fall of man with Adam and Eve, which we discussed in week one, the two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, and the decision we're faced between those two trees, and how that's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. They would have seen that fall. They would have actually seen men be getting corrupt, and they would have seen the flood as a great reset. But not only that, how many of you know after the flood, Noah, just like Adam and Eve, finds himself naked and ashamed because he got drunk and he found, was found naked in a tent. And there was another moment where you see human nature creep in and corrupt after God's cleansing. And then this story comes on the scene in sort of this third major moment where humans get it wrong. And, and I really believe that the author is helping us understand through these stories, a bit of humanity, a bit of the, the tension that we live in and the lies that we often believe and the things that we often get captivated by. And so we're going to read in Genesis chapter 11. So this is post-flood and, and there's still some cohesion of people and, and technology starting to advance. They're starting to understand the value of urbanization. It's easier to not get, you know, mauled by a wild animal if I have more neighbors. You know, Renee and I, we had another bear sighting on our property. And I'm like, where do we live? This is Andover. Why am I looking? We're sitting in a swing on a hill in our backyard. We're looking out at this sod farm. And all of a sudden, Renee goes, oh, look, a bear. And I'm like, you said that so casually. That's a wild bear. It's an animal. Like, 
Where do we live? What's happening? And then another one lumbers by and then kind of pauses and looks at us and just, you know, they're just like, okay, there's just bears in our backyard. Cool, right? But, like, they started to see the value of urbanization. They start coming together. And we see this in verse 1. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Languages bring people together. Common speech is actually a way that we can communicate and develop unity. And, and how many of you know, too, language, a lot of culture also flows through language. And, and many cultures are defined not just by the food they like, but by the way they communicate and how they use words to speak values. Words are really, really powerful. Then common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Here's where the technology starts to advance. They're like, wait, all these round stones, these are a little frustrating. We can't build things very high. We're limited in our scope on what we can do with just digging stones up out of the ground and pasting some mud around them and trying to hold them together. Let's actually make some bricks. Let's make them rectangular. Let's make them square. Let's make them stackable so we can build things of note, so we can build significant things. And we're going to bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Isn't this the tension of technology? Am I going to use the technological advancements for my glory? Am I going to do something that draws attention to me? What am I going to do with the advancements of civilization? Well, let's build this. Let's make a name for ourselves. And actually, many of you, when you hear the Tower of Babel, I just remember all the, like, you know, the, the, the Sunday school lessons and the coloring sheets. It always had a tower that looked more like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Like, that was always what it looked like. And, uh, and so that's what I had in my head. And, but when you study this, you would have known archaeologists have discovered really what it would have looked a lot more like in this time period is, is a ziggurat. And what a ziggurat was is actually uh, more of a stairway of a tower. And they would actually believe that they would build stairways. They'd put a temple at the top of the stairways. They would put beds in there, put food in there, inviting gods down to occupy that space. And then if, if the offering was good enough, that then maybe the god would actually move its way down the stairway. And then it would begin to bless the people. And so this be started to become a part of their religion. And it was not about the god. They would build ziggurats to multiple gods. And here they're saying, we want to build the ziggurat of all ziggurats. We want to build something so substantial that all the gods are going to notice, that we're going to build our way up to the heavens, and then uh, we're going to create this space. And um, it's also, we see something similar with Jacob's dream, and he sees a stairway to heaven. There's stairs going up. And they're trying to create this way, this momentum. They're trying to build towards heaven to make a name not for even the gods or a god, but a name for themselves. They want to build this, this staircase. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. So the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. 
So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it was called Babel, which we get the word Babel, meaning like to, to not be able to understand what somebody, oh, you're babbling, you're not making sense. Because all of a sudden the communication was broken down. I find it so interesting that all God had to do was disrupt communication and disunity was inevitable. He didn't have to do anything else. He's like, I'm just going to make it hard to communicate. I'm just going to make them not understand each other fully, and I'm going to watch as division happens. Again, we read this like some instantaneous moment, but a lot of people believe that not just one moment, but there was a, a spreading. This took some time. This took some, some generations for this full thing to come to pass. But, but when where communication breakdowns happen, all of a sudden people start to spread. People start to misunderstand each other, and out of the babbling that took place in this moment, they start... To spread. And some people I've heard argue, like, I just don't get this. Like, how could a God who says they're all about unity cause division and spread people? Help me to understand. You have to understand God cares about what it is that's unifying us. You see, they weren't unifying around him. They were unifying around a man-made, a man-made ziggurat. And they were trying to build a covenant with what they could accomplish, not a covenant with God. And God, in the next chapter, begins to establish his first relational covenant with Abraham. And, and, and this moment begins to happen. So what the issue is not that they were united, it's what they were united around. And they weren't united around God. And I wonder, church, have you guys, have you ever had trouble communicating with somebody and felt division happen? You ever seen a communication gap? Maybe it's something obvious, like they literally don't speak your language and you've flown to another country and you've misunderstood and you can't find a bathroom and nobody, you're like, you're screaming baño, but you're not even in a Spanish-speaking country, but it's like the one you know, you know, you're like, I'm trying to figure this out. I just, you know, you start trying to like start doing hand motions to describe going to the bathroom and then that feels weird and you're figuring it out and communication gaps. Maybe, maybe you're like me and you're similar to my generation and the older generation sends you a text message and you send this, having a text conversation, you have all these details and emojis and exclamations to make sure they know exactly how you feel and they respond with, sure. And you're like, excuse me? Sure what? Are you mad? What did I do? Are you angry with me? How mad are you? Just sure? You didn't even capitalize the S and there's not even a P. It's just lowercase sure or even worse, even worse when I get a K. Just the letter K. Oh, what did I do? Did I murder one of your family? Like, how angry are you? Because my generation, we're like, I'm going to put some emojis in there. I'm going to have the laughing. I like the one where they're like laughing and crying at the same time. I, I'm going to put in lots of, I'm like six exclamation marks. I email that way. There's exclamations all over my email because I'm like, here's the tone. Here's how I feel. I feel great. Today is awesome, right? Because I don't want there to be any miscommunication. None of that K stuff, okay? None of that sure. Like, what does that even mean? There's huge communication gaps amongst generations, though. And we see it, too, uh, in slang, in the, the, the sort of slang words we create. And I believe this is a part of the younger generation often going like, yo, I'm different. Don't, I don't want to talk like you. I don't want to dress like you. I don't want to look like you, right? I just saw there was a scale, like, I think it was like Business Week to put out a graph on social media that said that skinny jeans are officially dead. And I was like, no! Like, right now, the, the like, baggy pants are back, and so there was more baggy pants sold than skinny pants this last year. And I'm like, no, I'm holding out for the skinnies, you know? Um, 
But I've realized lately, like, I, I'm just like, I'm getting, I'm getting old, and, and I'm not cool anymore. Like, something happened, and uh, maybe he was giving up being a youth pastor. But I've started to hear these terms that I have no clue what they're talking about with young people in the church or people, young people I'm around. Or, and they'll say things like, what does that mean? And I don't want to be uncool, so I, like, go Urban Dictionary it, right? You Google it, you're like, what are they saying? But it's like its own code word. But I, I just decided since I needed help, you, many in the church, you may need help. Here's some of the terms that are dividing us. Here's what they currently mean. Okay, these are some Gen Z terminologies to help us out. The first one, the first one, if you hear them say, they're, they're salty. It doesn't mean angry anymore, okay? Salty doesn't mean angry. Salty actually means jealous now. Like, oh, I'm jealous of you. I'm salty about that. Like, I'm jealous of what you have. They're just changing terms. Uh, if you see uh, the term glow up, glow up has nothing to do with the lighting of a room, okay? It has everything to do. It means a makeover or a transformation from bad to good. You had a glow up, that's like, oh, I had a really good, I got a haircut, right? I got a glow up, and I'm helping you out. Try, you got to try these out. You're going to sound so lame. If you're 30 and older and you use any of these terms, you're going to sound so lame, and it'll be great. Just steal them. We're just going to use it. Uh, if you hear them say Stan, it is not short for Stanley. They are not talking about Stanley. Stanley's a good dude. We love Stanley, but that's not what this is about. Instead, it's a combination of both a stalker and a fan. If you stand someone, it means you're obsessed, but not in a creepy way. Like, like I'm, I'm here, and I'm, I'm like, I'm interested. I'm kind of obsessed, but like not in the weird stalker kind of way. I'm just really obsessed. That's what a stan is. Um, single dudes in the room, you might want to really watch that line. Okay, <laughs> really be careful there. There's a fine line between interested and really creepy. <laughs> it is a fine line to walk. If you have to say cap, this one's a, a little older but still relevant. Cap means to lie. Not that's it. It's it's not shooting anymore. <laughs> like it's nothing to do with bullets. Like it's it's it means to lie. Uh, and, and so if it's cap, if you hear somebody say the phrase no cap, it means you are being authentic or truthful. Like, oh no cap. Like that means I agree with you. That's true. That's right. And you're like, why'd you say no I don't does it Sure. Okay. No cap. Got it. Like we just got to learn these and we're going to work together. Um, if you hear someone say uh, the word chuggy and you don't know what chuggy means, that means you're a chuggy. Okay. <laughs> just letting you know. Chuggy means something that is not at all trendy or cool. <laughs> so millennials and up, we're already, we're chuggies. We just got to admit it to ourselves. Man, I use social media to post about my kids now. I'm a chuggy. Like, that's what it is. Like, that's not it. That's, I'm saying it wrong, too. I'm embarrassing my wife. That's not good. Oh. Anyways, there's all these terminologies, right? And you hear stuff, and you're like, what are these words? You're making stuff up. It doesn't even make sense. Right? But there's always these different communication barriers with almost everybody we encounter. Sometimes it's even a strong accent or, or a different way that they were brought up. And words and how we communicate matters because how many of you know when you can no longer communicate clearly or have run out of things to say, you start to, you start to drift apart from people. Like you ever even just had that where you get together with an old friend that you used to be able to talk to all night and all of a sudden you sit down with them and you're talking about the weather because you have nothing else to talk about? You're like, I don't, I can't communicate anymore. We don't have that common ground where that communication begins to break down. And, and really, all God had to do when, when he started to see Babel act in a way 
that was disruptive. He started to see Babel unify around something dysfunctional. All he had to do was break down communication, and they naturally divided. You see, division begins where communication ends, church. Division begins where communication ends. When we do the hard work of communication, we can start to grow, and we can start to bond, and we can start to connect. But, but, but it's such an important piece of that unity puzzle. How do we unify with people? In a world that is so divided, what does it look like to come together? Communication's a part of it. And actually today is, is you know, on the church calendar is considered Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost uh, was, is speaking about Acts chapter 2. And, and this is a moment in history as well where, where the, Jesus ascended, but he said, hey, don't go launch churches. Don't start ministry until I send the helper, until I send my spirit that's going to come down and is going to help you. So all the believers gathered together, and they prayed, and they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and it's so interesting that in Acts chapter 2, the solution to the division of the world that the Holy Spirit brings, the very first solution is communication. You, you see, where Babel is humans trying to build their way up to heaven and trying to get their way up. Babel is humans trying to build earth up to heaven. Acts is the opposite, and Acts is heaven coming down to earth. And, and humans wanting to build their way up to heaven and to be like God and to occupy that space is such a common story. But Acts is a reverse Babel. Acts chapter 2. Because what is the problem? Again, the Holy Spirit comes down, the room shakes, people are drawn to it. And it says this in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Babel, I can't communicate. Different languages, a splicing of communication. Acts, a coming together, a drawing together, and, and, and a, an active mode of communication that goes beyond the language barriers. So there's Parthians, there's Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, I'm probably saying these wrong, and Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, all of us, all of these tribes, all of these people coming together, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does it mean that we can all hear the goodness of God? What does it mean that we're all coming together and we're being brought to one singular place and we're actually rallying around one thing and it's the presence of God? It's not a ziggurat. It's not a man-made thing. It's the presence. It's the Holy Spirit showing up. Where Babel is a story of confusion and division, Acts is a story of communication and unification. And it's a coming together. And it's interesting because I really believe this. The people in Acts chapter 2, if you do a study of those different people groups, and I've done it at different times at Bible college and different moments where you study how divided the world was at the time of Acts and all the different languages, they were not unified in Acts 2 in all of their opinions. They wouldn't have yet been unified even in a lot of areas of theology, of culture, of their background. 
of some of their value systems. But here, the Holy Spirit says, hey, there may be a difference in all of these things, but if I can unite your language, if I can unite, you, uh, unite your language around the gospel message of Jesus, unity is possible. Unity can happen. I was listening to a podcast recently with a group of pastors that were on it, and, and one, Andy Stanley, said this that just jumped off so clearly to me as I was preparing for this message even. So I heard it this week. He said this, difference of opinion is inevitable, but division is always a choice. What a powerful statement. Let's consider this for a moment. Let's process this quote. So I'm going to have differences of opinion. There's not one person in this room that we would have total agreement. I don't even have total agreement with my wife. <laughs> so I probably don't have it with you. Now we have strong values that we agree on. We have strong foundations that we build our family culture off of. But there's times where we'll even disagree about the best way to discipline certain behavior with our kids. Or we'll disagree on what to have for dinner. <laughs> or we'll disagree on whether or not we can have chocolate chip cookies at 10 o'clock at night. And that's a good life choice, you know. <laughs> Whatever it is, there can be disagreement. But the reality is how many of you know that disagreement on whether or not to have chocolate chip cookies, that doesn't mean we have to be divided. It doesn't mean we have to have division. The moment we allow that to turn into a fight or an argument or create tension, now we've chosen division in our marriage, division in our home. And believe it or not, division is a choice. And, and you might say, well, pastor, people are deciding to be divided with me, and that, that will happen. In fact, Jesus promises that people are going to hate us for standing up for Christ. We know that that's going to happen. But the reality is we're going to have a difference of opinion. We're not going to see eye to eye on everything. But division is our choice. And we can choose what we're going to do. And so these people come together. They begin to speak the same language. And unity begins to fall in Acts 2. You know, as humans, we often add prerequisites to unity with other people. We want full agreement before we say yes to relationship. We want you to fully understand everything I believe. And if you don't agree, if we disagree, then disunity is going to happen. But I think it's important to understand that conditional unity is not unity at all. I'll be unified with you, but if you meet these conditions, if you behave the way I need you to behave, if you act the way I need you to act, if you post the way I need you to post, then we can be in unity. And the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I actually want to break through those walls of division. I want to break through those pieces that are dividing the church and dividing the believers. And I'm going to bring unity. People in Acts 2 weren't necessarily unified in all their opinions, but they were unified by the name of Jesus and his gospel message. So there's a huge component of unity that's happening, a coming together in the story of Acts. And there's a huge moment of division that takes place in Babel. And then there's another component I really want us to look at that's so vital. I think it's, I love how it's actually written that they did this to make a name for themselves. And, and if you don't relate with this, you're probably not being honest with yourself, right? If you don't understand the desire, the human, this is like this intrinsic desire that like, yeah, like I want credit. I want people to know when I'm awesome. I, I want to be applauded. When I score a goal, I want people to see me. I want to be celebrated at work for the hard work that I do. I want to be recognized. I want to make a name for myself. What a, what, what a basic human nature to say, yeah, there's a piece of me 
that I want to get some glory. And I think it's an important question to ask ourselves this morning, church, in your life, who's getting the glory? Like, like a really honest evaluation in your life, who gets the glory? Because Babel said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. We want to be known by what we can accomplish, by what we can do. We want people to see. We want people to be amazed. In your life, church, individually, who gets the glory? You see, Adam and Eve in the garden, they wanted to be like God in knowledge when they accepted the fruit from that tree. Babel here wants to be like God in their position. They want to be positioned in the heavens. They want the glory that God has. They want it for themselves. They're not trying to bring glory to God by what they're building. They're trying to get glory from God for what they're building. They're saying, hey, I actually want to receive glory. I want to be known. I want, I want to impress people. I, I want to be impressive. I want people to see what I can accomplish. Look at what we came up with, bricks. Wow, we figured out how to make bricks. So let's build a tower that shows off our glory and lets people know I want to be in the same position. Same temptation, the tree of knowledge versus the tree of life, but a different execution. It's not just a story of humans attempting to be great. It's humans wanting to share in God's glory. They want the glory for themselves. And there's this beautiful passage in John chapter 12 that really speaks to this tension and puts it super point blank. And I'll be honest, this is a sober, has been a sobering verse in my life for years. It has helped me when I've gotten off track in this area to constantly write the ship, to write the ship. And it says this, uh, there was a bunch of religious leaders who started to believe in Jesus, and they fully believed in the gospel message that he brought, but they were struggling with this. And it says in verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. The religious authorities, the leaders in the community believed in him. Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. We're not going to let, I believe this, but I'm not going to like, when he's saying confession, it's like a public thing. I'm not going to publicly let people know. Like, like, I don't want people to know that I agree. I don't want people to know that I, that I believe in Jesus because I'm afraid of what the Pharisees would do because they did not want to be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be kicked out. Listen to this. Let your heart grab a hold of this. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And, and what a test of whether or not we would agree. Is are there moments where we're saying, you know what, I don't really want the whole Jesus thing in this room, in this space at this time. I'm not really going to let people know that. Because if I make a public confession of that, like, their celebration's going to stop. Their celebration of me and, and my, my, my position could be in jeopardy and, and I just don't, don't want to do it. I don't want to be cast out from, from whatever your synagogue is. But I really believe this tension that we understand that's described here by the author that there's this glory that comes from man and there's a glory that comes from God and he separates it very clearly. These are not one and the same. Sometimes I really believe that one of the attacks of the enemy is to make us believe that glory from man is actually glory from God. 
that, that, that glory for man, that the celebration of man means, man, God must be blessing you because look at your favor. Like, clearly you are God's anointed because people love you. <laughs> Did you see how much they love you? Man, you, like God's hand must be on you. And sometimes the lie can be that the applause of man is actually the applause of heaven. And we can start to think that, like, when the applause of man stops, we, we've actually lost the applause of heaven. And we can start to misconstrue these things. But can I tell you, you cannot have both glory from man and from God. Because at some point, at some point, if your life is given towards building glory for God, at some point, you're going to have to do something unpopular in society. You, you cannot give your life to bringing glory to God and never go against the wave of culture. You will have to make a stand at some point and go, hey, I, I don't believe that. I, I, I disagree. I, I don't see that in scripture. Hey, that lifestyle, I actually think it's hurting you. And, and I know for you, it, it looks like, it like, 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 like something I should validate, but I can't because I love you too much. And I'm living to bring glory for God. At some point, at some point, you're going to have to turn down things that you know your ego can't handle. You know your ego can't handle it. But, but people are going to go, you're crazy. you got to take that promotion. And, you, and you're going, you know what? No. That makes sense to the world. But for me, I just know who I am. That's going to feed something in my soul. It's going to make me desire the applause of man. It's going to make me want to get celebrated. It's going to make me want to be, have notoriety and be known, and it's going to fuel something. There have been many times in my life where I've seen an opportunity and I've heard the check of the Holy Spirit. You're not ready for that. You're not mature enough. Your talent can get you there, but your character won't keep you there. So, so you need to develop something in you before you say yes to that, before you knock on that door or you walk through that opportunity. And this is a tension. When you are glorified by man, do you know Scripture actually says when we get glory from men, we eliminate the glory God wants to give us, the blessing from God. We actually eliminate the blessing. So, so, so Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full, verse 2 says. So I wonder, church, are we trying to know God and bring glory to God? Or are we trying to play God and get glory from man? Which one is it? What's the tension? And this is one of those pieces that's in front of us at all times. We don't just get to, like, check the box. And now I've arrived at now I only bring glory to God. And I'm not tempted by the glory of man ever. I've got it all figured out. This is a tension we're going to live in. It's a tension we have to occupy and I think there's one character that, that is so, so, so perfectly embodies what it looks like to be anti-Babel. To be anti, let me build up my earthly perspective and try to gain access to heaven by my works so I can be celebrated by man. There was somebody who, who embodied more of Acts 2 who embodied heaven coming down to earth and understanding who Jesus is and what he was about. And this character in Scripture was actually John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he was the anti-celebrity. Like, he was the anti-influencer, okay? You know, 80% of middle schoolers wrote down that they, they want to be an influencer when they grow up. 
You want to talk about a society that is shaping people around notoriety is it. Fame, that's it. That, 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 that applause of man, that glory for man, that is the goal. That is the penultimate experience you can have in life. And when you arrive at that place, God's going to bless you. And it's going to be amazing. But you got to get the applause of man. But again, you cannot live to glorify God and continue getting glory from man. At some point, it's going to come to he- uh, head. And John the Baptist is this such a unique cre- uh, uh, character. And I'll paraphrase his story a bit. And uh, he's the cousin of Jesus. And we know that when Mary um, came by him while he was in the womb, that he actually was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. Come on, if that's not a verse that helps us understand the value of life in a womb, man, I don't know what is, that he was able to be filled with the Spirit of God while still, um, while his mom was still pregnant with him and has this moment and he's touched by God. And he's actually got these rules. Like, like, are you kidding me? Like, he can't drink alcohol? Are you for real? He's got all these rules about his life and these things that he needs to do because he's set apart for something holy. He's set apart to bring glory to God. and He doesn't get his whole story spelled out in detail in Scripture. And, and we pick up his story when he's kind of like a crazy dude. You know, he sounds more like somebody who'd go to Burning Man than like a prophet of Jesus, right? Like, he's just out in the wilderness drinking, eating locusts, drinking honey, and he's got hair for his outfit, and he's like this kind of wild figure. And then he starts talking about somebody who's coming. And out of nowhere, people start listening to this guy. Like he starts to get the applause of man, it seems like. We start to read about crowds showing up. People are here for it. They're like, I'm going to go see John the Baptist. I'm going to go get baptized by him. And in fact, this crazy moment, Jesus comes to get baptized by him. And at this moment, don't you think there's a bit of John the Baptist the human flesh is saying, man, doesn't this feel good? Look, people are showing up. You're packing out these fields. <laughs> it's happening for you. This is your moment. But then he baptizes Jesus. Jesus begins his public ministry. And everybody, the crowd, starts to move from John the Baptist over to Jesus. The band can come on up. Moves over to Jesus. And all of his disciples, all of John the Baptist's disciples start going like, hey, John, where's the crowds? We're losing momentum here, people. Like, where's the applause? That felt really good. Like, where's the notoriety? There's less people getting baptized. Hey, we ran a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet. Look at the numbers, John. It's not good. It's not good. Okay, ministry's in trouble. Okay. Like, like we, we got to fix something. We gotta, we gotta throw some events. We gotta do some. We gotta get some people to show up. And John the Baptist says one of the most profound responses when it comes. When you want to see an example of what does it look like to live for the glory of God or the glory of man, he says this in talking about Jesus that he must become greater, and I must become less. He must increase, and I must dis- decrease. The one who comes from above. Is above all. Here we start to see his understanding of, 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 of being an anti-Babel. Truly, it comes into play here. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. Jesus came down. It's not my job to go up. It's not my job to build glory. It's not my job to build a stairwell. It's not my job to build this tower so I can build a name for myself. I'm from the earth. 
Jesus, he's from above. He's above our problems. He's above our pain. He's above our hurt. And he is worthy of all the glory. He's above all of this division. He wants to unite people. He is above it. He is what is required to bring people together. He is what is required to bring unity. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. What a humility. He was a renowned communicator, and here he belittles his ability to communicate. Because he's like, what is my perspective to Jesus's? What is my view to his? Who, who am I to take credit? Who am I to take glory? The one who comes from heaven, he's above it all. And I don't need to build earth to heaven. I need to invite heaven down to earth. And when that happens, it's not my glory trying to reach God's glory. It's God's glory filling the room. God's glory being manifest in our presence. Showing up. John the Baptist was not known. We don't get this like huge history of incredible miracles. Like we do Elijah or Elisha or Moses. We get very little about the magnitude of his ministry, and yet you want to know what Jesus said? There's none greater. There's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist because he gave his whole life to bring glory to God. That was his focus. He was the anti-Babel. He was anti-celebrity. He was anti-his name, and he was all about the name. The one name. The one name that brings unity. The one name that eliminates communication barriers. The one name that eliminates age demographic gaps. The one name that at that one name that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth. That one name. He was about the name of Jesus. He was about saying he must increase and I must decrease. It's not about me. It's never been about me. It's about Jesus. He is the hope of the world. And I don't need a covenant relationship with what I can build. I just need a covenant relationship with my Savior. And then I'll go build whatever he tells me to. I just need Jesus in my life. He's all that I need. He's all that I want. I don't worship buildings. I don't worship man's accomplishments. I worship Jesus. Babel reminds us that our glory leads to division. If you get the glory, if you're trying to rally people around you and your name, you inevitably will breed division. But Acts 2, Pentecost Sunday, reminds us that Jesus' glory always leads to unity. That when he gets the glory, his people are unified. Differences of opinion may be but we're not going to choose division because Jesus' glory, it's above it all. It's not an earthly perspective. It's a heavenly perspective. When we invite that into the room, anything can happen. So church, would you stand all across this place?